Welcome to the official Global Trade Review podcast channel. Today, GTR brings you the best in trade and export content, with highlighted discussions and insights from GTR Asia 2019. The event took place in Singapore on September the 3rd to the 4th, 2019. If you missed the event or are looking to be involved next year, be sure to visit www.gtreview.com forward slash events for more information. Dates for 2020's event will be available soon. One of the key consequences of various developments in the region is the ongoing rerouting of many of Asia's supply chains, seen as only likely to continue in the current climate. In this session, Rerouting Asia's Supply Chains, a range of experts will address topics including how firms are restructuring their supply chains and how successful has the sourcing of alternative options proved. Is there greater focus on sourcing goods from markets such as Bangladesh, Cambodia and Vietnam? Are more manufacturers either looking for cheaper hubs or greater process automation? Are more adopting a China Plus strategy? Are more companies now looking at reshoring or nearshoring to reduce supply chain disruption? How important is clarity and transparency over where products and goods are sourced from in the current climate? And what role can technology play in the process? My name is Pooja and uh, I run Risk Distribution and Export and Agency Finance at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Well, I was listening to Jack Ma the other day on TV where he said, it's easier to launch a war, but it's very difficult to stop a war. I guess very pertinent in today's times, isn't it? But I guess what's probably now even more difficult is to assess the impact of these wars on the global economy. Supply chain, a mechanism that has been at the heart of globalization, has led international trade to be where it is today from the 1900s. Add to that IT revolution, which made communication easy and reliable. Add to that China's entry into the world trade with this bountiful cheap labor. All of this combined has led to a manufacturing muscle of Asia. Now imagine adding this manufacturing muscle to a Western industrial know-how. And that has what has created a global enterprise, a global globalization of supply chain. Now the question to ask is, how do these supply chains or these global supply chains get impacted in the wake of protectionist measures imposed by the US? Will China's role as a world's workshop going to end or fade away? What about firms? Are they, look, are they looking for some alternate manufacturing options outside of China? What about digital innovation? Does that have a role to play in it in terms of getting supply chains shorter, logistics smarter? With that, ladies and gentlemen, those questions in mind, I'd like to welcome our panel today for an independent expert session on rerouting Asia's supply chain. So please welcome the panel members. We have with us here Munish Koshal, Area Finance Director and CFO GSK Southeast Asia, Larry Sloven, President Capstone International HK, Sanjay Tiwari, Head of Implementation Merck Trade Finance, Anupam Varma, Chief Executive ICICI Bank Singapore, and Malini Hariharan, Head of South Asia Markets ISIS. And last, but by no means the least, we have with us here someone who needs absolutely no introductions. Please welcome Dr. Rebecca Harding, CEO of Corilois Technologies, author of Weaponization of Trade, and in fact, author of a forthcoming book, Gaming Trade. Please welcome Rebecca Harding. So, Rebecca, what do you think are, I mean, in terms of the research and data that you have, the impact of trade wars, are supply chains really shifting, and what impact is it happening or having on the global economy? Um, so, if I could bring up my slides, um, I think the biggest thing that we're seeing at the moment is a war of attrition between the United States and um, China. Let's have a think about what this actually means and why this is happening. I know we had a panel on this this morning, but it's worth reiterating just briefly. There's no sign of any cooling off in the trade war between the United States and China, and the reason is this. There's a battle going on, and it's not just going on between the United States and China. It's also going on between the United States and Russia at the same time as well. And what we're seeing is a struggle for economic or soft power, we're seeing a military struggle as well for hard power. 
but we're also seeing a struggle for power in the digital and, and information and communications space as well. And what we're calling that is a struggle for the new paradigm. And as we're going through that process and the big powers are struggling for that new paradigm, what we're seeing is a huge sense in which the big powers are stuck in this, what we call, war of attrition. And the biggest thing for, for companies on the ground there is actually the uncertainty that that creates. It's a big problem because nobody really knows whether or not an investment is safe. Nobody really knows how supply chains are going to be rerouted or redirected. And what it does is it creates a slowing down of, of the economy. So for the first time since I first started studying economics, we're now in a situation where politics is directly influencing um, the economics of world trade. Now, that has a particular effect, which I will show in a minute, on ASEAN's economy, because the economy is export-dependent and reliant on Chinese and global demand. And I think what we're seeing most in the data is not necessarily a slowing down, although we are seeing some of that, but we're seeing a big impact in terms of two huge sectors for the region, semiconductors and machinery and components. But before we go into the data in detail, it's worth having a look at why all of this is happening. And this is China's, um, China's imports and export growth in the key sectors that are made in China 2025. So this is where the battleground is being fought between the United States and China at the moment. So what we're seeing, and I've put them in the same order, on the left-hand side are, is import growth, and on the right-hand side is export growth. And you can see that actually China, across all of these sectors that are the Made in China 2025 air, aircraft, arms, automotive, electronic products and equipment, machinery, pharmaceuticals, and the infrastructure of trade, railway and ships and boats, you can see that China is going to continue importing and the import growth analysed is going to be fairly rapid over the next five years. So it's not that this is creating a grinding down of the Chinese economy. It's just that it's slowing it down. However, if you look at exports, and this is the starting point for our conversation, I think, aircraft exports are going to increase over the next five years compared to a decline over the last five. Arms and ammunition, big area of, of conflict potentially. Automotives, electrical products and machinery, all of these areas are seeing growth in terms of exports now compared to five years ago. Biggest area where there's been growth is in the trade infrastructure around ships and boats and rail and transport. And that, of course, is around Belt and Road Initiative as well as the Made in China 2025. So what we've got here is a very clear picture to the United States anyway of why um, there is something that is going on here that the United States feels uncomfortable with. Now, for the rest of the region rail and tramway, ships and boats is positive because it creates the infrastructure of trade. So we can argue the toss both ways. So over to you on the panel for the first question. Perfect. Thank you, Rebecca. Wow. War of attrition, power struggle. That's, that's actually quite an impact. Um, so, I mean, that really actually brings us to the first question that we have for the panel in terms of uh, to what extent actually you are seeing this impact, you know, in, uh, in your experience? I mean, to what extent are the firms um, changing their supply chains to avoid tariffs on Chinese products and how successful some of these alternate options are proving to be? Um, probably, Larry, um, I'd like to start with you in terms of your experience with Capstone. Thank you. I think uh, your first comment about Jack Ma and what he said, he was missing one thing. How do you survive right now? Not about the beginning of the war or the end of the war, but how do you survive the war? All right, and that's the big question. Right now, we don't have the luxury of a year and a half, two years or three years of moving and manufacturing product in other countries because they don't have um, the, the factories are set up, uh, they're not in that type of business. They're not like when China, for instance, you could almost find anything in China, but you try and find similar things in countries like Vietnam or Thailand, they don't exist. 
because those people are not uh, entrepreneurial like the Chinese are um, in creating their own products. They're more focused on local market business. So you have that challenge. So how do you survive? All right, I've survived by putting together my Chinese manufacturer and a Thai facility to both work together. And you say, to the Chinese factory, I say to them, if you don't do it this way, you're gonna lose all your business. So you too have to find a way of re-engineering your business. So this is a solution of what to do. Um, I think the other thing that's important is, is the, the difficulties is the fear of the unknown for the Chinese. They're going into a different territory. And the other thing is living in false reality, thinking it's eventually gonna come back, because I started over a year and a half ago, and all my factories said, oh, this thing will end in six months, etc." I told them, you're living in false reality, it's not gonna happen. So I'm not necessarily discussing um, all of the facts and figures about the trade war, I'm just trying to find a way to survive in this environment that we have. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what's the key question of the hour today in terms of how companies are really going to survive. In fact, it was in the news that even Apple is now asking its manufacturers to look for alternate options outside of China to manufacture the headset. Malini, what do you think? I mean, are you seeing similar trends from your experience in working with the data analytics commodities? Are you seeing similar changes yet? I mean, the aftermath has started to appear. Um, yes, indeed, Pooja, and um, I'll take the example of the chemicals and plastics industry. Um, at ICIS, we uh, track markets for 100-plus commodity chemicals and polymers, so I can um, you know, see some key trends over there. Um, chemicals have been hit in two ways. One, there are direct tariffs that have been imposed by China on uh, U.S. product, and U.S., which has imposed tariffs on Chinese uh, uh, chemicals. The second is also chemicals are the first-level raw materials for hundreds of different finished products, be it in the auto sector or appliances, you name it, they all have some chemicals behind them. And so it's a double whammy for the industry because it's being hit, A, directly by tariffs, and B, also because of the finished products. These tariffs have also come in at a very inconvenient time for the U.S. industry. Uh, Rebecca talked about investments being made by companies and the uncertainty that this uh, trade war is creating. Uh, many of you all know that the U.S. experienced a shale gas boom nearly about 10 years back. And what we've seen as a consequence of that shale gas boom is a resurgence in the U.S. chemical industry. The U.S. chemical industry has spent billions of dollars in investing in new capacity. Let's take the example of a common commodity polymer called polyethylene, where the U.S. has added about 40% to its capacity between, in, say, in the last five years. The U.S. demand is not growing as much, and most of these capacities were actually designed for the export market to push into the world's biggest importer, which is China. But now, when these capacities are up and running, you find that that market is closed. So what we are seeing is trade flows adapting. The U.S. exports have grown by over 36% between 2017 and 2018. Chinese imports have grown by 18%. But U.S. share of China has gone down. And so where is the U.S. pushing material? Into Southeast Asia, right? You are seeing a big jump in U.S. export volumes into places like Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia. Perfect. And Malia, all of this suggests yep. Yep. that there is a shift happening in the supply chains. Excellent, excellent. I do want to come back to you, Malini, on the point on you know, some of the countries that are kind of getting impacted. But, but let's hear it from Sanjay. Sanjay, what do you think? Um, are you also seeing a shift as such um, yet in terms of the trends that you have been seeing at Maersk? So the answer is yes, we are seeing them, but I, but I just wanted to also caution ourselves to not look at everything through the prism of the trade war, you know? And there's a lot of trends that have been underway for a long period of time, and one of the fallacies that we can commit is to suddenly look at a fairly recent event through the prism of a trade war and ex retrospectively explain everything 
uh, through, that, through that same prism. And the, the trade war is a relatively recent phenomenon where it's a shift of a lot of production capacity out of China to Southeast Asia has been underway for many, many years. So a lot of companies have been shifting, easy to shift production to Vietnam, Cambodia, Indonesia, and our colleagues in Vietnam have actually seen a very you know, big surge in their, in their year-on-year exports, partially as a result of the trade war, but partially as a result of capacity that's been shifting into these countries for many years. So it's not just happening all of, us, all of a sudden. So I think that's one of the important things to keep in mind. Interesting, Sanjay. And I think that's a very interesting point you made with respect to not just happening on account of trade war. And we'll probably come back to that question because I think that's something we can explore a little bit more. Um, uh, moving on, I think I want to see what Rebecca's slides have to show in terms of what actually is happening with respect to the research. So, I mean, I think what we can say straight away is that everybody's right so far. Um, there's, there's very real evidence that um, supply chains are shifting, um, but there's also very real evidence that, that those supply chains have been shifting for a long time. Um, so, I mean, if we look at something like, like oil and gas, for example, and you look at the Chinese, Chinese imports of oil and gas, that's coming to a very large extent from outside of China. It's coming from Tajikistan. It's coming from, it's coming from Australia. So it's actually a lot of the stuff that's now under a trade war is being, is being influenced by that. And to, to the extent that these things have been going, going on for a long time, I mean, if you look at aerospace, it's one of the sectors that's actually doing very well in ASEAN. Um, and it's been doing very well. It's been exports from China to ASEAN and then out towards Germany and the United States, and there's real growth. But if we have a look at this, actually, exports generally are not doing terribly well. Um, so across Asia, if you look at the value of Asian in ASEAN in exports to the top six partners over the last, it's actually quite, it, it's actually from a spike in the middle of 2016 that's then come down. Um, you can see that Asia actually at the moment is suffering from uh, the effects of a trade war. Now there's this huge drop for China and, and exports of ASEAN to China. Um, you can see it's not as significant as to the United States. So the United States has actually done relatively well out of this at the moment. You can also see as well India is doing relatively well. So of these economies, it's actually China and Hong Kong that are suffering the most in terms of, in terms of imports from ASEAN or ASEAN exports too. But it's the sectoral level where we need to worry. So while we don't want to see everything through a prism of a trade war, it's actually specific sectors and specific livelihoods that are going to suffer the most. So if you look here, the two sectors that jump out immediately are electronics and machinery. These are the two biggest sectors of the region, of the ASEAN region as a whole, and those are the ones where you're seeing the biggest drop. So um, aerospace is actually doing moderately well, automotives, it's been relatively static. And watch this space on footwear. It's the biggest, it's the fifth biggest sector in the region. Why is that important? Because as of Sunday, there's been, there's been um, tariffs imposed um, on footwear as well. Now that's a very big sector and it's going to affect some of the peripheral economies um, or some of the very small, not peripheral, but very smaller economies that are, have been growing fast like Bangladesh. So, um, yeah, and could, this, could some of this shift be a result of supply chain moving? Well, if we focus just on, on semiconductors, again, you're beginning to see a very similar story. So China's, China's exports, largest ASEAN semiconductor exporters, if you look at Ch or ASEAN exports to these regions, less going into China... Um, less going into Korea, less going into Hong Kong, but actually you can see Japan has picked up slightly um, since the middle of 2018. Um, and that's interesting in and for itself because Japan appears to be a country that's benefiting in terms of exports from this region going to Japan. If you then look at within the region, the countries that appear to be doing best, you've got some in, in the semiconductor sector. Indonesia has been relatively static. You can see that Singapore has actually started to pick up a little bit towards the end, um, the end of, um, or rather the middle of 2018, towards the end of 2018. But actually, there has been this big drop in semiconductor exports across the region. So this is beginning to show that there's some kind of a shift going on across the region.
Excellent, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Obviously, this, that, that, that you know, brings us to the point on exports obviously are clearly getting impacted, especially from China. And, and to Malini, your point earlier, which you made with respect to, you know, there are other countries that might set to benefit from it. But the question really to ask here is that, um, does the, do the other countries have that capability to be able to um, leverage on this opportunity that is there? I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're cl clearly seeing greater focus on uh, sourcing goods from markets like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam, and how hard do we think is, it, it is going to be um, to repeat the scale of China? A big challenge, really. And no better example than probably the textile and apparels uh, industry. Um, as you all know, China is the world's biggest exporter um, for these products, and China has built a formidable presence across that value chain. Um, now, most of uh, the apparel trade is in synthetics, polyester being the main one, and China today accounts for 60% of global capacity of polyester. It's also built capacity in the raw materials that go into making polyester. It has had the luxury of time, 10, 20 years to build this position. It's invested, its companies have invested tremendous amounts of money, and they are very well integrated across the value chain, which also gives them a very strong competitive position. They are continuing to invest, which means that they're also building a position for exporting out of China. So what the scenario that we're likely to see is that, yes, the cost-sensitive kind of manufacturing, maybe it's apparels, which is going to be drifting out. And if that's been happening, uh, it's not something new. It's been happening for a, a few years now. That'll move out of China, and we're going to be seeing the raw materials being imported by these countries. Excellent, Malini. Thank you. Anupam, what, what, do, what do you think that um, these trade wars are leading to these changes, or you think there could be other factors that could be impacting these trends that we are seeing as far as exports are concerned? Yeah, um, I think there are two uh, irreversible factors at play here. Uh, one, I think we briefly talked about in the morning, uh, we are living in a bipolar world where both U.S. and China are looking at global technology leadership, and they see it as a strategic advantage for the future. That's gonna, not going to change. So all global organizations will have to keep geopolitics in mind as they plan their business going forward. The second factor is more China-specific, uh, more of a structural change. So if you look at um, China in the last 10 years, the government has been focusing on shifting away from exports into domestic consumption. And as a result, we have seen the minimum wages almost tripling in the last, last uh, uh, 10 years and giving more money in the hands of people so that their spending goes up. Uh, so, so what you see is... If you look at the China domestic market, uh, consumption as a percentage of GDP has now touched 60%, which is a bigger contributor than export. Number two, um, the trade surplus which China used to have, uh, which is about 8 to 9% of GDP, has come down to almost zero now. So what it means is that even China is looking at focusing on high-value-adding, high-tech industries um, and manufacturing processes as part of their strategy going forward. And low-value-adding manufacturing process will move to uh, other low-cost locations. Um, having said that, I don't believe at this point of time supply chains are moving. And let me give you a couple of examples of, around that. Let's talk about electronics. Uh, in electronics, I think, you know, currently China, and, and they, they have taken almost 10, 15 years to build that kind of a, a technology leadership. They are at the heart and nerve center of the entire complex uh, uh, global value chain in electronics. Um, so even today, while we're talking about some of the uh, manufacturing moving to Vietnam and a lot of other countries, the large multiple sub-assemblies are being manufactured in China. And it's only the final assembly and finishing which is happening in countries like Vietnam, only the last mile. Um, you know, the, just, just to take an example of a province like, uh, you know, Guangdong, which is almost today contributing to 10% of global electronics capacity. Uh, just imagine how difficult would it be for any country to create a, um, a, a province or a state like that. Uh, it'll take 10, 15, 20 years. You know, uh, China has created an aggregation of networks 
and uh, uh, China's, you know, uh, aggregation of networks and ecosystem, which will be very, very difficult for a lot of other, other countries to recreate. China has moved from becoming an OEM to ODM, which is design. They have invested in technology, they have invested capital in innovation. For, uh, as a result, we, I, I feel that what we are seeing a movement into Vietnam and other, a lot of other countries is only the last mile, which is still more, uh, you know, uh, lower value adding. Um, but most of the uh, most of the raw material or the subcomponents are still coming from China. That's, that's the uh, example of electronics. Uh, as far as textile is concerned, um, you know, if you look at low value adding, uh, you know, garmenting in terms of uh, cutting and stitching, that has moved to Vietnam, uh, uh, you know, Bangladesh, and so on and so forth. But uh, you know, almost. 50% of textile and uh, fabric for all these countries is, is coming from China. So the technology, uh, you know, um, leadership which China has created in a lot of these industries, it will be difficult for other countries to replicate. And while we are, optically we are seeing that ASEAN has become the second largest uh, trade partner for, for China, but I think it's only the movement of the last mile in the entire value chain replicating the entire value chain in terms of the entire uh, focus on technology, innovation, having the right ecosystem for suppliers, designers, and having a, a city, for example, like Shenzhen. It'll take a lot of time for other countries uh, to create. I mean, Perfect, Anjum. That actually is a very different point of view that you're being. I mean, it, the two things that stand out from what you said is obviously one that it's extremely difficult to replicate China's strength in terms of its capability onshore that it has, and two, the fact that it's just getting more difficult to move. It could be just the last mile, like you mentioned, or the packaging or repackaging of goods that could be happening in Vietnam. And as we see, obviously, if Vietnam's exports are going up, it probably could be more optics than happening in reality because this could be rerouting from China to Vietnam. Sanjeev, what, is, what, what do you think? If, do you have a similar opinion or you think that, uh, that supply chain change is for good? Yeah, I, I actually, I think Anupam makes a lot of really good points. And, uh, you know, when, as he was speaking, the, the thought came to my mind, you know, how important is the world to China and how important is China to the world? i.e., can, can China do without the world or can the world do without China? And I would argue that China can do without a great deal of the world. They're very resourceful internally. They have an incredible ability to execute. But can the world and can particularly the United States and the United States retail industry do without China? Because the effects of these, these tariffs are going to play out when, when somebody has to pay one and a half or twice as much for a mattress that they're buying in the U.S. that came from China or their furniture that's coming from China. That's when the effect is going to hit home. And, you know, McKinsey came out with its Asia report, I think in July or August. It's a very good um, report, and it actually echoed what you were saying, Mali, earlier, that uh, the production of labor-intensive goods in China between 2007 and 17 went from 3 trillion to just under 9 trillion, 8.7 to 8.8. But that, as a percentage of Chinese exports, actually went down from 15% to 8%, i.e. China was consuming the bulk of what it had started to increase in, in, in production. So China can actually do without, you know, uh, a, a large part of its exports to the world. And I think it's going to be less impacted by these uh, tariffs than we, than we think. Interesting. I'm curious to see what Rebecca's slides show for this in terms of uh, are we really seeing some impact on um, different countries with respect to their trade after trade wars have started? So the short answer is no. Um, <laughs> As you say, it's very difficult to replicate, replicate the size and the scale of China. And particularly, if you, look at, um, if you look at what ASEAN has been doing in relation to Bangladesh, Bangladesh has actually been relatively static, if anything, a slight decline. Its main sectors are in clothing. So there sector imports into uh, the ASEAN region. Uh, the, main, the main sector is obviously clothing from Bangladesh, and that's been in slight decline, but been relatively static over the last 12 months. What that says is that Bangladesh is not disproportionately having any kind of advantage from what's going on at the moment. And if you look at the exports, again, you can see that there's been an increase in oil and gas, but that could very simply be increase in prices, um, that the value is higher. Apart from that, actually, exports, slight increase in electronics. Bangladesh isn't having any kind of advantage necessarily um, from, from uh, the trade war, from things being relocated to Bangladesh. 
the numbers are a little bit vaguer, but what you can see is that Vietnam has had some kind of, some kind of impo- impact. You can see that there's a very positive line that's been going on over the last two years um, in terms of exports to Vietnam, um, but that's actually relatively small. So you can see that China is potentially exporting some of its supply chains, but not a huge amount. Um, In terms of imports, though, China is still not importing. So it's not having a big impact on on, on trade that's actually going into China. So to the point, can China do without the world if the world can't do without China? China's... China's whole advantage is that it's developed scale, it's developed integration into global supply chains, and it's developed technology to be able to play a long game in terms of um, trade wars and in terms of how it develops trade. The world is far more dependent on China than China is on the rest of the world, and I think that um, pretty much summarizes it. Wow, excellent, Rebecca. So obviously, I mean, you know, bringing up to the earlier theme that that Anupam started in terms of, you know, what ability do we have, do the other markets have in terms of, you know, moving that expertise of China into other markets. So, I mean, just delving a little bit more into that um, um, and and question for you, Munish, in terms of, um, you know, what you've seen at GSK, um, how how significant are cost issues or, or, say, wage structures? Do you think manufacturers are conscious looking at cheaper hubs and how do you think companies are adapting to these newer challenges that have been imposed on their supply chains? Yeah, uh, absolutely, Pooja. And uh, in terms of adaptation, uh, there has been a two-pronged strategy uh, which all the companies are currently looking at. In the short term, everybody thought it could be a short-term phenomena. So there was a lot of focus in terms of leveraging uh, supplier relationship, looking at in terms of how do we uh, you know, f- uh, divide the burden between consumers, suppliers, and uh, slash prices, uh, and manage the supply chain. But uh, from wait and watch, now it is uh, moving to action. And action is in terms of not only just moving the supply chain, but also is around uh, look at some of the finer aspects of tariffs. Uh, it could be uh, related to reclassification of uh, certain items, uh, which has been the area which is overlooked. Uh, it may be related to some product designs, and Anupam also mentioned, you know, a lot of uh, companies are looking at in terms of how do they change the label, how do they, uh, you know, move the raw materials to another place and get the, uh, you know, finished goods produced. And um, in addition to it, uh, there are other aspects uh, in terms of strategic buying, buying ahead, especially uh, the next uh, big uh, timeline, which is coming up is December 15, when most of the electronics uh, items will come under a huge tariff increase. So they are looking at all these options. And in addition to it, you know, looking at the financing costs, cutting the overall base. But the important thing to note here is that though it could be all happening at the tail end, uh, but uh, on all the strategic supply chain movement initiatives which the companies are taking, uh, it's going to be on a long-term basis. So it is, in many cases, it could be reversible. And the interesting point to note here is that uh, we are not seeing any trends of any of the supply chain getting rerouted to U.S., So it is within the Southeast Asia. So the U.S. is not gaining much as far as the supply chain, uh, uh, you know, hub movement uh, is concerned. So most likely in the in the medium to long term, the Southeast Asia economy is going to gain out of it. And uh, over a long period of time, you know, uh, obviously it's going to take massive amount of time before we say that okay, you know, uh, the world can live without China. Wow. Excellent, Munish. I think I, I, I do sort of note your point on that irreversible aspect that you mentioned, which means that once it started, probably it's, it's, it's never going to go back. And I think I, I want to bring Larry to that point in terms of, do you think, Larry, do you agree with that? Do you think this change is irreversible from that aspect? And, um, you know, obviously bringing into account uh, some of the some of the cost factors, um, you know, how time-consuming it will be in terms of changing factories from China to other markets. Do you really think this is irreversible or you think that this will all end at some point in time and, you know, the world will be back to China again? I don't believe anybody's coming back. I have a short sentence which I say, Elvis has left the building, all right? Nobody's packing their bags and going back to China. It's over. Face reality. 
figure out how to survive in the environment. The thing that most people don't, haven't, we haven't talked about, the graphs and the information, it was all well and good, but how do you do this? Where and how do I start the process of transitioning my business from China to other countries? Not what country, but how, and who can, who can support. You know, if you're in the garment business, it's real easy. You just pick up your sewing machine, you go to another country. Actually, most of the garments now are coming out of Kenya, where they've already made the move, and it's easy. And the garment people are used to doing this for years because they're always moving around from place to place. The issue is, let's say, electronics business. The amount of components and the things that you need from different companies is very difficult to develop, all right, and it takes a long time. So some of the challenges that you face you need boots on the ground. You don't need somebody that comes to a foreign country who comes four times a year and figures out how to do this. You need somebody that understands how to do this and has done it before. Remember, you're dealing with culture and mentality also when you go to these foreign countries. You can't put a time limit on that. You could put a time limit on training people, but culture and mentality, it could take a year. Right? And the other thing is, when you go there, I've always, I've always said that one of the things that we all, as even if, let's say Americans, come to a foreign, come to Asia, and they try and tell their staff how to do it the American way. Well, it never works. What I believe you always have to do is, I want to go here, you get there your own way, okay, the right way. Because how, what are we to tell other people how to do things? We're not. So um, I don't think anybody's packing their bags and coming back anymore. We have to face reality. Excellent. I think uh, it seems like while companies are so heavily reliant on China for their production at the same time, uh, you know, there's some sort of rebalancing that is being looked at and, uh, you know, the variety of factors that are coming to play with it. Anupam, what do you think? What, what is your point of view as, you know, as a banker, as a financer? Do you think there could be opportunities from a, from a, from a banking perspective here? Um, so would love to hear from you. Yeah, but uh, before that, let me just, uh, you know, I, I meet a lot of clients uh, as part of my, my job. Uh, so what we have seen in the last one, one and a half years when I meet clients is a very, very consistent trend. Supply chains have not made, uh, changed. Suppliers have changed. For example, you know, uh, soybean which used to move from, from US to, uh, uh, to China. Now the soybean is moving from Brazil and Latin America, uh, Brazil and Argentina to, to China. Similarly, copper is moving now from, from Chile to uh, uh, China. Or if you look at a lot of global MNCs, um, anyway, um, a lot of global MNCs have multiple suppliers. Uh, so they have, looking at anticipating uh, things going from bad to worse, they have maybe increased the order, order which they give to their vendors in other countries, be it Malaysia, be it uh, you know, Vietnam, and so on and so forth, and looked at maybe reducing their order uh, uh, in, um, in China. But clearly, we have not seen at this point of time uh, people looking at putting that capital investment and skill investment in creating an alternate uh, uh, value chain. Yeah, so as far as the banking is concerned, I think both it's an opportunity as well as, as a challenge. Uh, opportunity in terms of, you know, uh, working with our clients, looking at uh, uh, new countries uh, and new, uh, you know, trade supply chain that they have. Challenge is also in terms of a lot of these countries, the supply chain is not so supply chain financing is not so developed, so there are challenges around counterparty risk, yep. uh, country risk, and a lot of illiquidity around the structures. So yeah, I think as banks, we're also kind of uh, working with our clients uh, on, on their journey um, on, in this area. Absolutely. Sanjay, as a financer, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, this, this point A, that Anupam ra raises about, you know, you mentioned the soya shift, right? The Chinese have an incredible ability to execute, and, and the, indeed the exports of U.S. corn and soya to China have ground to a halt, but that's driven by the Chinese executing and saying, okay, as of tomorrow, this stops, as a result of which their imports have shifted to Brazil. Right? They have a phenomenal ability to execute. If, if, I mean, most people are not old enough to remember this, but January 2009, uh, I was sitting, you know, uh, listening to a presentation by the chairman of Caterpillar, actually in March 2009, and he said in January 2009, the exports of Caterpillar equipment to China, i.e. their imports, ground to almost zero. Because the financial crisis hit, the Chinese said, 
the leadership said, we need to take stock of what the heck is happening with our country, and they ground to almost zero. I think literally, you know, double digits imports of earth-moving equipment. A month later in February, they were back to the normal level because the leadership had figured, okay, we can sustain this, we're going to ride out this storm, we're going to do this. So they have the ability to execute on this, which a lot of other countries don't actually have because they're a very centralized way of decision-making. So I think that just an anecdote under, underlying the whole, you know, soya things, etc. But it does mean from a trade finance point of view that these American exports now of corn and soya are coming to Southeast Asia as a result. They're coming in much smaller parcel sizes, they're coming containerized, so it means that as financiers, we have to find a mechanism of actually funding uh, these importers here in Southeast Asia. The ASEAN countries are obviously buying much smaller lot sizes than the Americans, than the Chinese were buying. So how do we figure that out? That I think for us as those of us working in the financing industry, trade finance, etc., is I think a key question. Absolutely. I think that's a very, very valid point. Munish, what about you? You think from, uh, from, 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 a, from the perspective of GSK, um, are you seeing similar trends? Um, what, is, what do you think um, from your perspective, um, you know, how, how expensive or time-consuming this whole process is? Yeah, as far as uh, GSK is concerned, we don't see any major impact. Uh, so I can talk more from a broader perspective. Sure. Yes, uh, uh, there is uh, there is an impact, and it depends, you know, which industry we are talking about. Uh, there are some industries which are more adaptive to uh, change and rerouting their supply chain much faster. And uh, based on my understanding and discussion with uh, various experts on this, uh, see, costs are important, uh, but at the same time, other C, two C, you know, which are important is uh, capability and culture, which Larry also mentioned about, and then the another important thing is execution. So how do uh, the ASEAN economy or the ASEAN countries execute at the level at which, uh, you know, U.S. want uh, and how quickly they, uh, you know, speed up their operations in terms of capacity expansion. But definitely uh, the trend is very clear that in terms of decision making for the incremental capacity uh, is definitely moving out of China to, to some major industries. I see. I, actually, one more point I would like sure, to when we meet our clients. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, situations, things we look from the perspective of U.S. and European MNCs. When I meet a lot of Asian MNCs, in the longer run, they are also evaluating how much they invest in uh, how much they need to invest in catering to, let's say, 300 million U.S. consumers versus 3 billion Asian consumers in the future. So that's also a longer play, which a lot of Asian MNCs look at in terms of looking at their futuristic uh, supply chains and manufacturing and so on and so forth. Interesting, Anupam. I'd love to hear what uh, Rebecca Slides has to say in terms of how significant these cost issues are, are as far as um, you know, these, the impact of tariffs is concerned. So, Rebecca, over to you. Um, so, you have to forgive me at this stage I've been playing with data. Um, and I think what's really interesting is if you look at China... Yes, it has a huge capacity to be able to reinvent itself, um, but it is very reliant and has been reliant up to this point on commodities or trading goods that are very price sensitive because it is an emerging economy. It is still an emerging economy. It's the, 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 the stuff that, that, that um, the United States is really worried about is the next phase that's coming along. So if you look at this and you look at everything staying the same, which is the top graph here, um, what you can see is that China's trade is pretty much, it's always going to increase. For the next five years, exports are going to increase because everything can stay the same. So I thought to myself, okay, if we're going to see an impact on Chinese trade and see things change at all, what do we have to do? to change the model. So I've got a what-if analysis. So I looked at all sorts of things. I looked, at, I looked at inflation. I looked at GDP growth. I looked at all sorts of things around the world that would have an effect. And the only circumstances under which I could collapse um, Chinese goods trade um, was if I put some very severe assumptions on prices that prices were going to come down quite significantly or rather costs were going to go up. 
And then also, most importantly of all, if foreign direct investment changed. So actually, foreign direct investment in the good space is more important. And there you can see, and the lines are quite quite weak, but you can see that there's an increase into 2019 because that's the momentum that we already have. And then after that, as foreign direct investment starts to fall back and costs start to increase, you can see that the line actually comes down quite significantly. But I want to say something very important here, and this perhaps, um, this perhaps is something that's hidden in the whole discussion that we're having at the moment. This is goods trade. This is about China's goods exports in things like electronics. It's about its intermediate manufactured goods. It's about the stuff that is going to places like Vietnam and Indonesia and so on. It's not about where China is developing at the moment. So to the point, can we actually return to normal? There isn't a normal to return to. China is evolving and it's moving into more more high-tech areas of of exports and it's moving into um, exports that are more in the service and digital space as well. So that while we might well see a decline here, that decline is actually common across the world and what's beginning to happen is things are moving into the service sector and into digital space where we can't measure them. Well, Rebecca, that's actually quite a powerful slide, especially when we talk about projections with and without the tariffs. I mean, the contrast is quite stark, actually. So, I mean, as we see that there's just so many factors that are going into play, right? Whether they're costs of production, labor costs, wages, um, you know, FDI, as you mentioned there. I, I just want to bring the attention to to technology. I mean, do we think that technology has a role to play here in terms of just making sure that if technology advances, then logistics will get smarter, supply chains will get shorter, and therefore, you know, that'll kind of lead to all problems solved. So, Anupam, what what, what do you think um, from, from a technology perspective or from a digitization perspective, does that change anything? Uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, um, apart from the other factors uh, important for building alternate supply chain in the future, one critical factor which is becoming important is compliance uh, in terms of how your supply chain is uh, meeting the ESG standards, sustainability standards, number one. Number two, how uh, your supply chain is able to ensure end-to-end transparency and integrity uh, in terms of, at at all point of time, you are able to track uh, the goods and digital services that you have uh, going right up to the point of origin. I think that's where technology will play a very, very important role. Um, uh, And we are already seeing, uh, you know, know, uh, tech giants like uh, Amazon and Alibaba doing a lot of work on redesigning and re-managing supply chain. Uh, you know, where that they are talking about making the supply chain what they call smarter, faster, um, and, and more efficient. Uh, that's, that's point number one. Uh, point number two is also in terms of how the business will change. Uh, let me just take an example of uh, a passenger car. Um, today, uh, you know, if you look at the automotive industry, supply chain is very complex, and you have multiple components and so on and so forth. If you look at electric vehicle, which is supposed to have only 20 components, and again, electronics and battery will be at the heart of of, uh, uh, that product, the entire supply chain will have to be totally reimagined, and uh, technology and digitalization will play a very, very important role uh, in um, how a a new product like this comes, so to say. Excellent, Anupam. I think absolutely right, especially with the likes of the examples you gave of Amazon and Alibaba, who've kind of cracked the whole supply chain. I mean, delivery literally is happening on the same day, within the same region, or within a couple of days. So, lots to learn from an MNC perspective from that. Um, I'd, I'd now, I mean, we're almost at the end of the session. I'd like to, um, um, you know, have Rebecca to give us some concluding remarks um, uh, in terms of, you know, what's coming up. Um. Are we going to return to normal? No, this is the new normal. Um, There's anecdotal evidence, and we've seen it from the discussion today, um, that there is a big impact that's beginning to happen, that we are beginning to see China slow down, that we are beginning to see things shift, but it's not going to happen quickly enough to take away that very large manufacturing power away from China. 
What's interesting is that it's outside of the Asia-Pacific region that trade is really, and ASEAN region in particular, that um, exports are really growing. So we're looking at India, we're looking at Japan, we're looking at Australia, actually having some very positive fallout from all of this. And what's beginning to happen is that um, the export credit agencies were beginning to see anecdotally interviews that I've conducted um, while I've been um, going around the circuit over the last year or so suggests that something much broader is going on. So there's a shift in the way in which uh, products are being defined, the way in which products are being labelled to get round tariffs, but also to try and encourage smaller businesses in um, and also larger businesses funded by Chinese um, credit agencies in order to be able to keep the whole supply chain across the region moving. As we've already said, supply chain transparency is really big for the Asia-Pacific region. But what I would say, at the end of the day, technology is actually part of the problem. And why is it part of the problem? We only have to look at this picture here on your left. This is actually from Donald Trump's tweets. If you look at the number of times in the last year that Donald Trump has used the word war, tariffs, protect, hurt, unfair. It's been going up exponentially compared to 2017. So in 2017, we had illegal, we had massive a little bit, we had had protect. But the big difference in 2018 was the fact that war had come onto the agenda. He uses that word in a tweet about trade once every four days. That's incredible, right? He's obsessed with it. He's using that word. Are we going to be able to get back to normal? No, we're not. War is the new normal, and so much of it is beginning to move into this technology space. It's part of the problem, not necessarily the solution. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, that was pretty depressing, I'd say, but... uh... Um, So we see, obviously, there are so many factors that go on to playing, redesigning or rethinking the supply chain. I mean, from cost of relocation, as we saw, to environmental regulation, cultural aspects, production costs, to name a few. I mean, we all know and we've all kind of realized that China's strength in the world economy is, 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 is where it is. It is pretty strong. But I think what is quickly the need of the hour is for firms to rethink supply chain to prepare themselves for the geopolitical events of the year. By Jack Ma's words again that uh, trade should not be a weapon to create wars. Trade is, in fact, a way to build trust. Trade is, in fact, a way to stop these wars. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to our free podcast to hear the top trade discussions from over 20 international GTR events, one-on-one interviews, and more. If you'd like to be kept up to date with GTR's daily news and industry events, sign up for our free newsletters at www.gtreview.com forward slash register.